0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of a Black Widow story for today's topic. And I I feel like this topic was actually suggested by a listener, but I feel super guilty because I cannot for the life of me find an email or other communication about it. To verify I,
0: that? I also looked and I can't either, which means it was probably on Facebook or Twitter, which is impossible to find really old stuff on.
1: So, uh, if you were the person that suggested this, thank you and I apologize for not retaining who you're who you were, uh, but if you weren't a person that suggested this, then this may be a fun ride for you. Uh, we're going to talk today about Mary Ann Cotton and she is often referred to as a Victorian serial killer, sometimes the first female serial killer. Some headlines will even list her as the first serial killer. Uh, we don't really have her as a household name though, which is kind of an interesting Factor, although that's likely to change in the not-too-distant future, and we'll talk about that more at the end. Uh, Her story is really fascinating, and it's one of those things where, as is often the case with criminals, you're going to start to see some patterns emerge in the behavior, uh, and we will discuss all of that. So we're just going to dive right into it because this one's a little bit long.
0: In October 1832, she was born Mary Ann Robson in Low Morsley, which is a mining town in County Durham in the north of England. Her parents were Michael and Margaret Robson. Michael worked in the coal mines, and the Robsons had two other children, Margaret, who died when she was quite young, and Robert, who was two years younger than Mary Ann.
1: And when Mary Ann was eight, the family moved to the village of Merton in County Durham for another mining job. Michael Robson, the father, was unfortunately killed on the job in 1842, so the children were still very young at this point. Mary Ann would not have yet turned ten. And Michael's body is said to have been delivered to the family's home in a coal sack stamped with property of South Hatton Coal Company.
0: In 1844, a Methodist Sunday school opened in the village and Marianne taught there. In 1846, she became a nursemaid for the family of Edward Potter, the manager of the colliery where her father had died. Later on in life, Marianne became something of a social climber. And there's some speculation that her time working for the Potter family, exposed to a more upscale life than her own family had been, gave her aspirations to a greater life.
1: And she worked for the Potter for three years. And then uh, she turned briefly to dressmaking as a trade around 1849. This is one of those interesting things that I kept turning up while I was doing research for this. A lot of headlines will uh, sort of tout her as a dressmaker serial killer. But she didn't really seem to stick with dressmaking very long. So I'm not sure why people glom on to that unless they're just trying to somehow defame those of us who like to make dresses. (laughs) But she uh, also met a young man around this same time named William Mowbray. And Mowbray was fairly new to town. He had moved there for job opportunities at the mine. And the pair would marry a few years later, on July 18th of 1852, at the Newcastle Register Office.
0: It's possible that Marianne was already pregnant by Mowbray, which is why the couple opted for a quick Register Office wedding instead of a union at the Chapel of the Church, where she was teaching Sunday school. The two of them moved to Cornwall not long after their wedding.
1: And the next several years for the Mowbrays are fairly undocumented. Uh, it does appear that William worked for a time in railway construction. But what we do know is that four years after they had left Merton, they then returned. And at this point, they had a child with them named Margaret Jane. And this is where already the facts start to get a little funky and murky, uh, because Marianne allegedly told people there in Merton that, in fact... They had had three other children in this brief four year period that they were gone, but that all of those children had died. And so some people like to uh, sort of list those children as the first victims. But we don't actually have any uh, substantiation that those children even existed. Uh, but again, they do sometimes get lumped in when you see like the final body count. Sometimes there's an extra three in there that maybe didn't even exist as real people.
0: Once they settled back in Merton, William Mowbray started working at the company store for the colliery, but he didn't keep that job for very long. In 1858, he followed a job as a stoker to South Hetton. Not long after that, the two of them had a daughter. She was born on September 26, 1858.
1: Yeah, and that daughter, Isabella, uh, lived longer than any of the other children that Marianne was involved with, Uh In June of 1860, their daughter, Margaret Jane, who had been with them when they moved uh, back to Merton, died. Her precise age at this time is unclear, although she is believed to have been younger than three. And her cause of death was listed as scarlet fever and exhaustion.
0: In October 1861, the couple had another daughter, who they also named Margaret Jane. The family moved around the same time to Hendon and Sunderland, where William worked first as a shopkeeper, then as a fireman, and eventually as a stoker on a steamer.
1: Yeah, it often always comes back to working somehow in a coal mine or other uh, enterprise at a colliery. But the couple had a son named John Robert in July of 1863, although he died several months after his first birthday in September 1864. And his cause of death was listed as diarrhea.
0: William died in January 1865, and his death certificate lists both diarrhea and typhus fever as his causes of death. At this point, the couple had been married for 12 years. There have been stories over the years that the doctor who signed William's death certificate observed Marianne singing and dancing through the window, although those stories have never been substantiated with another witness or anything like that. There are also other descriptions of Marianne being distraught over the loss of her husband.
1: Yeah, and I, I wanted to point out these two varying accounts of her behavior uh, after the series of deaths, and particularly that of her husband, because there is some sorting out that always has to be done when you're talking about sort of a, a famed or at least notorious killer. uh where, you know, stories that corroborate, and I'm making the air quotes there, corroborate their status kind of as monsters come out that may or may not have ever been real. Uh, but what we do know is that William's life insurance paid out the sum of 35 pounds to Mary Ann, And she used some of that money to relocate with her two remaining daughters, uh, Isabella and Mary Jane, to see harbor. And we are going to talk about their life once they get there after we have a brief word from a sponsor. Getting back to the story of Marianne Cotton. She's uh, often called Marianne Cotton, but she actually didn't have that name till quite late in the game. Uh, So Marianne began seeing a man named Joseph Natras Almost immediately after arriving in Siam Harbor. And there's been some speculation by various biographers through the years that she may have actually begun an affair with Natris, uh, while she was still married to William, but we don't have any evidence one way or another. That's another one of those cases where it, it kind of supports this idea of her as an evil woman, but we just don't know. Uh, but regardless of when their affair began, Natris was already married and he actually had been since 1860, although it is unclear whether in, an- whether Marianne knew about his wife or not.
0: Just as Marianne's family was in this perpetual state of mourning before arriving in Seam Harbor, life continued on this way. The second Margaret Jane died on April 30th, 1865, and her death was attributed to typhus fever.
1: At this point, Marianne's mother, who had remarried to a man named George Stott, was living in Newseum, not far away. And she decided that uh, the remaining daughter, Isabella, should actually come and live with her. And Isabella stayed with her grandmother and her step-grandfather until Margaret died in March of 1867. That death was attributed to hepatitis. And just six weeks after that, Isabella died. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those deaths in context of the timeline in just a moment. So at
0: this point... Just to, to, to sum up, uh, Marianne, the, the deaths include Marianne's father, uh, her mother, her husband, and a bunch of children. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm just making sure we're keeping an accurate count. After the second Margaret Jane died, Isabella had moved away. Her relationship with Joseph Natras had sputtered out, and he and his wife had moved to find work elsewhere. Marianne was on the move again, and this time it was back to Sunderland.
1: And she started working as a nurse at the Sunderland Infirmary House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever, Dispensary, and Humane Society, and that was in the summer of 1865. So this was a hospital for the poor. Uh, It really had far less than ideal conditions. And Marianne, though, was apparently quite good at her work there. She was praised as a fine worker, and one of, the, uh, one of the physicians there described her as one of their best nurses.
0: After she started working at the hospital, Marianne met a man named George Ward. They had a brief courtship, and they got married on August 28th of 1865. This was a small church ceremony. The marriage was really not a very happy one, and it only lasted for 15 months because George died on October 20th, 1866. His death was attributed to, quote, English cholera and typhoid fever.
1: Yeah, George, uh, she met him while he was uh, in the hospital. So it's kind of interesting that she would marry up with him, uh, him having not really been in a great financial situation, but. Shortly after George died, there was another man in town named James Robinson who became a widower. His wife, Hannah, died at the age of 27. And at this point, James was left with five children to care for. So even though he had some sisters in the mix who could help out, he really needed someone to be there to help him with the children almost all the time. So he advertised for a housekeeper, and Marianne responded to that ad, and she moved in shortly thereafter at the end of 1866.
0: Not long after this, in March and April of 1867, were the aforementioned deaths of Marianne's mother, which took place nine days after Marianne traveled there to see her and help look after her while she was sick, and her daughter, Isabella. Before May of that year, three of Robinson's children had also died. Isabella and two of the Robinson children had been insured before their deaths.
1: And Marianne was also pregnant. Robinson was the father. Uh, the couple married on August 11th of 1867. And Marianne listed her name on the marriage certificate as Marianne Mowbray, kind of skipping over George Ward as though he had never existed. Uh, their child, their new child, Margaret Isabella, you'll find she repeats children's names a lot, uh, was born on November 29th of 1867. And Margaret Isabella lived mere months before dying of convulsions in early spring of 1868.
0: In June of 1869, James and Marianne had another child. This was a son named George. Later that year, it would become apparent to James that Marianne had been stealing from him by taking money she was supposed to deposit into their building society account, then falsifying entries about it in the ledger to make it look like she had made those deposits as instructed. She also ran up a bunch of debts in his name without his
1: knowledge. As you can imagine, this turned into quite a fight. Uh, And in the midst of all of this arguing and wrangling that took place once all of Marianne's fiscal indiscretions came to light, because James Robinson was much better off than her previous husband's. Uh, In the midst of all of this arguing and wrangling that took place once these fiscal indiscretions came to light, Marianne somehow worked it where she asked James as part of this to take out insurance policies on himself, his two remaining children from his prior marriage, and their son, George. And James refused, and Mary in an angry fit, left with young George. She moved out, according to some accounts, but she'll say later that it wasn't quite that way. Uh, James decided to sell their house, so he boarded it up. He moved in with one of his sisters, uh, and then eventually he moved into a new home of his own.
0: At the end of the year, Mary returned to town and left the infant George with a friend while she went on an errand, but she never came back for the child little George was eventually brought to his father in early 1870.
1: The time from late 1869 to the spring of 1871 is kind of hazy in Marianne's life. She would later say that she had gone back to her home with Robinson and carrying George thinking that she was going home and they were going to make up and set things right. But that she felt like she had just been kicked out into the street when she saw that their home had been boarded up. So she was like, all right, I'm out of here. Uh, There's been some speculation during this period where we don't have a clear sense of exactly what she was doing, that she may have worked as a prostitute or a petty thief during this time to make ends meet, but there is really no substantiation for that. What we do know is that at some point she did actually do some work uh, for a man named Edward Backhouse at the Smyrna House Home for Fallen Women, possibly as a laundress. During this time, Marianne met her fourth husband, Frederick Cotton. Finally, we're
0: to the Cotton part. He was, She was introduced to him by his sister. Frederick had been married with four children, but two of his daughters had died of typhus, and his wife had died of consumption in late 1869. After his sister Margaret moved in to help him, she connected the two. And
1: in early 1870, Marianne went to Wallbottle to visit the Cotton family. And Margaret, the sister of Frederick, uh, had 60 pounds in the bank that her brother was going to inherit, and she suddenly died on March 25th after suffering from stomach pains. Her cause of death was actually reported as pleuro-pneumonia. And true to a pattern that's developing, Marianne was pregnant uh, sometime around this time with Frederick's child. She left Wallbottle briefly and worked as a
0: housekeeper for a German doctor named Hefferman. During the short time that Marianne kept house for him, several of his items went missing, but another employee was blamed for it and fired. Marianne wound up quitting and was back in Wallbottle by the summer of 1870.
1: Yeah, so that was really a very short period, like a a six weeks-ish, maybe, month. Uh, I don't have a clear sense of the actual times, uh, but it's sometime very briefly, because we know that in late March she was there, and then she was back by the beginning of summer. Marianne did get married to Frederick Cotton on September 17th of 1870. And shortly thereafter, she insured Cotton's two sons. In April of 1871, Marianne moved to West Auckland with Frederick Cotton, his two surviving sons, and their new baby, Robert Robson.
0: Marianne immediately made a very rash and cruel move. She tried to put the younger of Frederick's two sons, Charles Edward, into a workhouse. So a workhouse was a horrible place for a child, or for anyone, really, but especially for an unaccompanied child. The children who ended up there were normally born into circumstances where there was just no other choice. But the Cottons were not destitute at all. Marianne just wanted to put the child somewhere she wouldn't have to care for him.
1: Workhouse administrators were not willing to take a child who appeared to have a a perfectly acceptable home, although they had no idea that the woman of this house was far more dangerous than almost any fate that a child would face at the workhouse, even though that was a really terrible place to be.
0: Once the family had moved to West Auckland, Frederick started to work at the colliery there. And coincidentally, Marianne's old paramour, Joseph Natris, was also working at that colliery. Joseph's wife had passed away and he had no children, so it's likely that Marian arranged the move so that she could hook up with him again.
1: Frederick Cotton was not around for long after the family settled in West Auckland. He died on September 2nd of 1871 of typhoid and hepatitis. Natris moved in with the remaining Cottons three months later. So after all this trouble
0: Marianne had gone to in order to orchestrate a reunion with Natris, you might think she'd savor her, her new fortune. But she started working as a nurse for a well-to-do bachelor. Mr. Quick Manning, who was recovering from smallpox, had no children, and he worked as an excise officer for a brewery. So in short, he was a step up from what Natris could offer Marianne.
1: Over the course of several weeks from March 10th to April 1st of 1872, Marianne worked to remove the burdens of Natris and the remaining cotton children from her life. The eldest son died first with his cause of death listed as gastric fever. Baby Robert was the next victim on record as passing from convulsions from teething. And finally, Natris died of typhoid fever on April 1st.
0: This left Charles Edward Cotton as the only member of the family. Marianne tried some pawn him off on an uncle, but that didn't work out. She moved with Charles Edward to a smaller home, although she still had enough space to take in lodgers, something that she had done many times through the years to make, to make extra money.
1: By summer of 1872, so this was just a couple of months after Natris died, Mary Ann was once again pregnant, possibly with Quick Manning's child. Believing that she was soon going to be married to Quick Manning, she asked her lodger, William Lowry, to move out. She said that her soon-to-be husband was not okay with her renting rooms to men. But she did, however, continue to offer her nursing services for hire.
0: On July 6th, Marianne was visited by a man named Thomas Riley, who lived nearby. He wanted to ask about nursing services for another smallpox patient. And the conversation with the two of them turned out to be pivotal, because Riley was immediately suspicious of her. She was pretty open about how burdened she felt in having to take care of Cotton's son, Charles Edward.
1: Mary Ann even asked Riley, who worked as the assistant overseer of poor relief for the town, if he would write an order to send the child to the workhouse. And Riley said he would do so, but only if Mary Ann was going to go with Charles Edward, and she was insistent that she was never going to do such a thing, she was not going to a place like that. And this conversation, uh, then turned to the rumors that Mary Ann was likely to soon be married to Quick Manning. And Mary Ann said, yes, that was indeed likely, except for the fact that this child that she was burdened with was frankly an obstacle.
0: So then, as was later recounted in court testimony, Mary Ann told Thomas Riley, quote, Perhaps it won't matter, as I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the Cotton family. She actually said this, In front of the child and Riley sort of trying to smooth things over by mentioning how hale and hearty this child appeared.
1: Less than a week later, Thomas Riley was walking by Marianne's house when Marianne appeared at the doorway and she told him that Charles Edward was dead and she wanted him to come in and view the body. Riley went immediately to the police to report his suspicions that Marianne had killed the child.
0: So Marianne did not know that Riley thought she was a murderer, at least at first. He, I think, was more surreptitious than she was. The first clue came in the form of there not being a death certificate. The doctor who had been seeing Charles Edward, who was Dr. Kilburn, uh, wouldn't make one out right away. And they didn't explicitly tell Marianne so, but this was because a coroner's inquiry had been requested. No death certificate meant that she couldn't make a claim on the life insurance policy.
1: So this coroner's inquiry was formed and Dr. Kilburn got permission to perform a post-mortem examination of Charles Edward's body. Ann was at this point informed of the situation and Kilburn examined the child's corpse there on a table in Mrs. Cotton's house. But Kilburn was sort of pressed for time. This jury, uh, this coroner's inquiry jury was convening like in a pub nearby and they were basically waiting on him to make his assessment and then report back and uh, so when he reported his findings to the coroner's jury, he wasn't super confident. He had just felt like he had to rush through everything. And he thought it was possible that the child might have died of gastroenteritis, but he really wasn't certain. And so the jury, uh, after deliberating briefly, just deemed the death to have happened by natural causes. Because his actions had
0: caused her so much trouble, Marianne wrote to Thomas Riley and insisted that he pay for the child's
1: funeral expenses, which Riley did. So things may have appeared to be settling at this point, but Riley still really strongly felt that wrongdoing had led to this child's demise, and he continued to use his connections in local government to try to get the case looked at more closely. Basically, anyone's ear he could bend, he would, and he was very quick to say, I think this woman is a murderer. Because of the coroner's inquiry, this whole episode had also been reported in the papers. So Mary Ann's fortunes started to really fall apart. Her potential engagement to quick manning evaporated. He wanted nothing to do with her.
0: This also meant that Mary Ann basically became a pariah. She couldn't get nursing jobs. She had no income. She sold all her furniture to try to bring in some money. Then she came down with a sore throat and was sick in bed. But when she asked a neighbor to call for a doctor, the two that were summoned... Uh, one of which was Dr. Kilburn refused to come to her.
1: In mid-July, so this had all happened in the early part of July, and then in mid-July, I believe it was the 17th, Dr. Kilburn began a series of tests on the stomach contents of Charles Edward, which he had collected during his postmortem. Using a Ranch test designed to detect the presence of heavy heavy metals in biological material, Kilburn determined that the child had indeed been murdered by poisoning, and Mary Ann was arrested the following day, July 18th of 1872. Charles
0: Edwards' body was exhumed on July 26th, and additional samples from the body were taken by Dr. Kilburn and sent to Thomas Scattergood at Leeds School of Medicine for forensic analysis.
1: And while Marianne was in jail, uh, but before her trial, she actually gave birth to another child. This is the one that was believed to have been Quick Manning's. And she uh, she named this child, a little girl who was born on January 10th of 1873, Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton.
0: Marianne Cotton's trial lasted only three days, from March 5th to March 7th, 1873, which is kind of mind-blowing since murder trials today often go on for weeks this has, uh, She had been charged in the murders of Charles Edward Cotton, Joseph Nattris, Frederick Cotton, and Robert Robson Cotton, although she uh, was only tried for Charles Edward's murder.
1: Yeah, it seems like, though I was not able to confirm this, that basically if she had been found innocent of this first murder charge, they kind of had the other charges waiting in the wings, so they would be like, then we're going to try you on this one, and then on this one. One of the witnesses during this trial was a woman named Jane Headley, and she was a friend of Mary Ann's. It was interesting because she hadn't known her all that long, but she kind of described her as a very close friend. So this is one of those moments where it's kind of important to point out that Mary Ann really, uh, you know, she had a charm about her. She could make people feel very close to her, like they were confident. She certainly had no problem attracting men. Uh, but this woman, Jane Headley, was present at the death of Joseph Natris. And her description of it is quite gruesome and unsettling. She talks a lot about his spasms and his fits and Marianne having to hold him down when he had these convulsions. And Headley also testified that Marianne did indeed keep arsenic in a pot on the top shelf of her pantry.
0: Another witness, Marianne Dodd, testified that she had bought arsenic and soft soap for Marianne Cotton after the druggist refused to sell these items to Charles Edward. There was an 1851 Arsenic Regulation Act that had made it illegal to sell arsenic to children. Cotton had told Dodd that she needed the supplies to treat her bedstead for bedbugs. So Dodd's helped Cotton use about half the arsenic to treat the bed, and then the other half was put into a pint jug.
1: And then uh, for additional testimony, relatives of some of the deceased uh, were called to confirm that, yes, in fact, Marianne did care for sick family members, which sounds initially kind of nice, but then that followed up with, and she also had not allowed anyone else to do so. She was okay with people being there, but basically she wanted to do all the nursing.
0: While Dr. Kilburn gave testimony, it was really Scattergood who was the star in terms of forensic evidence. Scattergood testified that based on his tests, he believed Charles Edward had been given multiple doses of arsenic over the course of several days. Scattergood had also found evidence of lethal doses of arsenic in the exhumed remains of Joseph Natras, Frederick Cotton, and the baby Robert.
1: The defense for Mary Ann was based largely on this kind of wacky idea that Charles Edwards' poisoning had been accidental. And this was suggested that it either happened through ingesting residue of this bedbug treatment or or uh, that he had inhaled or otherwise ingested wallpaper debris that had flaked off and been circulating in the air because arsenic was used in some colors, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, and the rest of the defense was really built around how preposterous an idea it was that a nurse and a mother could kill the very people she was caring for.
0: Today we call this the no true Scotsman fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> no true nurse and mother would do this. So after less than an hour of deliberation, the verdict was handed down. Marianne Cotton was found guilty of poisoning her stepson.
1: So from the day that the verdict was handed down to the day of her execution, Marianne wrote a number of letters to friends and family, asking them to petition on her behalf. She also contacted her still husband, James Robinson. Remember, they had never divorced, so she had actually been marrying other men while she was already married. And she asked James Robinson to bring the three children that he had to visit her, which seems sort of creepy uh, and preposterous. She also arranged for her new baby to be adopted by a couple who had been her neighbors in West Auckland. Apparently, a lot of people offered to adopt this child that had been born there in the prison.
0: Mary Ann was put to death by hanging on March twenty-fourth, 1873 in Durham Prison. Fifty people attended the execution in the prison, and a crowd of about 200 gathered outside. She maintained her claim of innocence to the very end, and as she left her cell and headed to her death, she allegedly said, Heaven is my home.
1: So, at this point, I mean, we're talking about a couple dozen probable murders, or close to that. And so it kind of makes people wonder, and it comes up a lot in biographies, if she was such a prolific killer, why is she not a household name akin to Jack the Ripper or other famous killers throughout the years? And Deborah Blum, who is the author of The Poisoner's Handbook, uh, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age, New York, wrote an interesting piece on this, and she put forth the idea that one of the reasons that Marianne Cotton hasn't become a household name in these years since her uh, arrest and and execution is that she was associated with arsenic.
0: This was a time when arsenic was basically the superstar of poisoning. It's estimated that between 1835 and 1880, 40% 40% of all poisoning homicides in Europe were the result of arsenic.
1: Part of the reason that arsenic was so common as a poison was that it was so common, period. It was in all kinds of completely normal things. We've already talked about how it was used to treat bedbugs bugs. It was also used in wallpaper, in tonics, in rat poison, in fabric dye. Uh, many of our listeners have seen and shared with us articles about that lovely shade of green that was super popular through the 1800s that was also incredibly poisonous because it contained arsenic.
0: Another thing is that when 822 survivors of arsenic poisoning were interviewed by forensic chemist uh, Rudolf Witthaus in the late 19th century as part of his research, Fifteen of them, so 15 out of 822, reported having tasted the metallic tinge of arsenic in the food or beverage that they had consumed that was tainted. This means that less than 2% of the people who survived arsenic poisoning noticed anything amiss, which uh, gives you some idea as to why arsenic was quite popular to use to poison people.
1: Yeah, it was so easy to just slip into a food, especially if it was, you know, something like an oatmeal or a soup or drop into a drink. And to add to the appeal of arsenic from a killer's perspective, the symptoms that came with it were often easily explained away as other common ailments, such as rheumatism and flu. And so they often went undiagnosed as a poisoning. I mean, we mentioned throughout all of these deaths, sort of what a lot of them were listed as, and they're sort of common and odd things.
0: There are actually people who will argue that Marianne was not the serial killer she's been made out to be. Challengers to the idea that she deliberately murdered all these people point out that while she did collect insurance on many of the deaths, none of them were considered suspicious until her stepson died. While multiple exhumed bodies of her believed victims have tested positive for arsenic, just as Cotton's stepson did, if Marianne were tried in the modern world, the judgment may have gone very differently, largely due to a lack of forensic evidence.
1: And it's uh, interesting to think about how popular arsenic was and how it then fell out of favor completely as a poison. Uh And for that, you can thank the British chemist, James Marsh, largely. Uh The Marsh test for arsenic was developed in the 1830s, although at that point it was not considered like a foolproof test. And it was developed and improved over the years until it could eventually detect even the tiniest trace of arsenic.
0: So as Marianne was carrying out all these crimes, this test and others like it, which would immediately detect the, presen- the presence of arsenic, were pretty new.
1: Yeah, and people just weren't thinking about poisoning as much. You know, this is a time when people did die in large numbers. There was a high mortality rate for children, so in some ways it was, uh, you know, not really something that raised an eyebrow, unfortunately. Uh One thing that we should note here, too, though, are the people in Marion's life who are listed as having died of typhus. Uh, apparently, that's not normally a thing that would be diagnosed accidentally when arsenic poisoning is in the mix. Typhus leaves a very uh, particular set of uh, evidence on a body after somebody has died. However, the distinction between typhoid and typhus uh, had only been clinically defined in 1847 to 1851 in the work of Sir William Jenner. And prior to that, and even for some time after Jenner kind of established these definitions, some doctors incorrectly use these two terms almost synonymously. Like it could go either way. They would write one or the other on the death, death certificate.
0: That makes me feel better about the times we've accidentally said the wrong one. Uh, we don't actually know why Marianne committed her crimes. She professed her innocence right to the very end and she collected life insurance payouts in many of the cases. But these payouts weren't especially large. Various accounts of her life has speculated as to what may have led her to start and then continue to just eliminate people from her life, but it's all speculative.
1: Yeah, in the end, we really have no idea. I mean, it did seem, if you kind of look at it in terms of the timeline, like she kind of wanted to get rid of things that were in her way from kind of living the life she wanted, but we still don't really know what the scoop is there. In 2013, eight of Marianne's letters were sold, and these uh, had been letters that were written to the last lodger that Marianne had rented a room to. We mentioned him briefly in the episode, William Lowry. And they focused largely on pretty mundane topics, mostly financial issues and solicitors. They weren't like for, full of juicy details. She made no uh big admissions during these. She never made any admissions of guilt. Uh, but these letters were then expected after this initial sale to be sold off separately. But... As of uh, early last year, so early 2014 in spring, Victoria House of Oxford was working to raise money to keep all of these letters together to buy them from the person who had purchased them and keep them together in the Durham County Records Office. I couldn't find anything later on this topic than May of 2014, which is when they were still working on this fundraising campaign. So I don't know how it turned out. So on the off chance any of our listeners do, write us and let us know. Then just last month, which June
0: 2015, a movie about Marianne Cotton was announced. Actress Joanne Froggatt has been cast as Marianne, and you may know her better as Lady's Maid Anna from Downton Abbey. I have mixed feelings about this <laughs> casting.
1: <laughs> well, this is why I said at the top of the episode that she is going to become a household name soonish. I think uh, with the movie coming out about her, and especially with a star that is much beloved on another show, even though. D- very different. Well, uh, and
0: I, I just, I love now Abbey a lot. Uh, it's final season. I'm going to super watch. I'm very excited about that. But I will admit, and if you're not caught up, don't listen for the next 15 seconds. I am tired of murder plots involving Anna. <laughs>
1: Well, now you're gonna get a big one. I know! So I'm like, oh, why? She will be playing Marianne Cotton! And I'm sure she'll be lovely in it. Uh, so, and I'm excited and really look forward to that. It's one of those interesting things where there, there's really only like one photograph that you see circulated of Marianne Cotton and she looks kind of frail and maybe kind of grouchy in that way that sometimes Victorian photographs look. There's actually been some debate over whether it's actually even another woman. And some historians have pointed out, like, again, no, she was actually described at one point by one of her early uh, employers as beautiful. So this kind of weird picture may or may not even be her. And even if it is, it may not be the best
0: image of her. Yeah, this explains why, why when I went looking for pictures to go with the episodes that we're recording today, I could find literally only one picture anywhere of her. And it was too small to go on our website.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. Sorry that I, I picked one that's going to be hard to source imagery for. But she's a fascinating character in history. And it, it's one of those things where we like to talk about ruthlessness. There's a uh, one of the books that I read by uh, David Wilson uh, called Marianne Cotton, Britain's First Female Serial Killer. He really talks a lot about kind of how she's been characterized through the years uh, and some really interesting kind of cultural approaches that we take when we're dealing with discussions of people that we want to label as monsters and how we characterize them and how we describe them. And it's not exactly pertinent to the historical discussion of it, but it is a really interesting read. If you're interested, I recommend it. Uh, I also have some listener mail that has absolutely nothing to do with this particular bit of death. Although it does have to do with death a little bit. And since this episode ran long, this is kind of a short listener mail. It's from a listener, Jenny. And it actually refers to an episode that Tracy and I did not even work on. But it's an interesting historical tidbit I thought I would share. So she says, so Holly just told me on Twitter that you get notes about old shows all the time. So here it goes. I did tell her that and I'm fine with that, even though we may not always have an answer or insight for what you're asking about. But Jenny says, I just listened to the show your predecessors did on the Halifax explosion. This was back in December of 2011. One fact that I find interesting that wasn't mentioned was that the Halifax coroner already had a very good system in place for mass casualty incidents that he used. He had developed the system a few years earlier because his office dealt with all the bodies they could pull out of the Atlantic after the Titanic sank. So a very old episode, but an interesting tidbit nonetheless. This is a fascinating little tidbit. I did not know that. Uh, and I didn't double check that for verification. I'm just going to trust you on this one, Jenny. Jenny. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at uh, history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter @mistinhistory, at History, at Pinterest.com slash history, at com and at MissedInHistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase yourself a shirt or mug or tote bag or phone case or other goodies. Uh, if you would like to visit our Parent site on the web, that's houseofworks.com. You can type in the search term serial killer and you'll get so much content. One is how serial killers work. There's a quiz about serial killers. Talk all about it. Uh, if you would like to visit us, that's mistinhistory.com. We have an archive of every episode that's ever happened. We have show notes for all the episodes that Tracy and I have hosted and occasional other goodies. Uh, so we encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and our parent site, houseofworks.com.